We do not know what tomorrow will bring. This is a truth that has really come into focus for us in the last few weeks. We have been hurled into a world-changing catastrophe where each day brings with it new surprises that we could not have possibly foreseen. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. This is essentially what Jesus tells a man who comes to him. This man wants Jesus to side with him in a dispute over his inheritance. And Jesus tells him a parable about the foolishness of thinking that we know what's going to happen tomorrow. As we continue our series in Luke's gospel this morning, we're going to dive into that story. And I invite you to take out a Bible and open up to Luke chapter 12 beginning in verse 13. So that's Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. And we're going to read through to verse 34. Let's give ear because this is God's word. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, Who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, You have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. Life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable are you than birds? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the lilies grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it, for the pagan world runs after all such things, and your Father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased 
to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Will you pray with me? Holy Spirit, I ask that you would come and that you would illumine our hearts and minds to receive the word this morning. Thank you that you inspired Luke to pen these words and we ask you, Holy Spirit, do your transforming work in us. Bring us into an encounter with the living Christ. We pray it in his mighty name. Amen. I think everyone of us is feeling the weight of this time. We're all dealing with worry. And that's what we're going to consider this morning. We're going to consider what worry does to us, some of its symptoms, and then we're going to consider the root of what worry is, and then we're going to consider the antidote to worry. First, this text teaches us what worry does, some of its symptoms. First of all, worry makes us fear the future. If you survey the word worry in the Bible, what you'll notice is that in almost every single instance, it's talking about something that hasn't yet happened. It's future-oriented. It's anxiety about what might be. Worry dwells on the hypothetical. It dwells on the what-ifs of life, and there are many. Look at verse 29. Jesus tells them, do not seek what you will eat or what you will drink. Do, do not have that what might be attitude. Do not worry about the what ifs. Worry drives us today to try to secure tomorrow. Worry drives us today to try to secure our tomorrow. We crave the comfort, very understandably as humans, of knowing that our way of life and what we're used to, what we're used to enjoying, knowing that our way of life is secure and that it will remain secure for a time to come. But that's a trap because you sacrifice your peace and your joy today. Follow me? You sacrifice your joy and your peace today by being anxious about securing tomorrow. Look at the end of verse 29. Jesus re repeats the command to not worry. He says, do not keep worrying. But Luke does an interesting thing here. He actually uses a different word for worry. And the word he uses literally means to be suspended high in the air. Worry keeps you in suspense. That's what Luke is telling us. It keeps you in this state of suspense with the uncertainty of tomorrow. Worry makes us afraid of the future. And as we fear the future, we sacrifice our peace and joy today. That's one thing worry does. Another thing worry does is it makes us greedy. We become overly concerned with our possessions and our material welfare. Why? Because the way to secure tomorrow, the way to insulate myself against the what ifs, 
that might come is to hoard up everything that I have. That's where greed comes in, right? It's rooted in an insecurity about tomorrow and a sense of scarcity. This is why people buy way too much toilet paper and and canned beans and noodles in a time of crisis. It's this effort to insulate ourselves and to secure our tomorrow. We fear there's not going to be enough. There's not going to be enough for me and mine when the crisis hits. When the sun rises on a new day, I'm not sure that I'm going to be secure. And so what I need to do now is I need to grab. I need to hold on to what I have and get as much as I can and just hold on for dear life. Notice how the text begins in verse 15. It begins with a warning about greed. Jesus says, Uh, Watch out for all kinds of greed. But later, Jesus doesn't say, don't be greedy. He says, don't worry. In other words, in order to address the issue of greed, Jesus knows he first needs to uncover this deeper issue of worry, which drives us to greediness and this scarcity mentality. Worry drives us to be greedy, to hoard up and to hold on to our possessions for dear life in the hopes that it will secure for us tomorrow because ultimately we're afraid of tomorrow. Third thing worry does is it makes us self-centered. In the parable about the rich fool, the words I, me, my, and mine abound. Did you notice that as we read through the text? The man only thinks of himself. He has this abundant harvest, which the ground produced. So it's not like it was because of him. Yes, he put in his work, but the ground, that that is God who supplies the ground. That is God who causes things to grow. God provides the rain and the sunshine. So his ground produces this abundant harvest, but he takes no thought for God, for a tithe to God. He also takes no thought for, for generosity towards his neighbors. In that day and age, people in general were living day to day. They they were peasants. But this man takes no thought about how this abundant harvest might benefit his neighbor and be a blessing to others, right? That double love command that we've been seeing Luke emphasize to love God and love our neighbor is just nowhere on this man's radar. The first and only thought he has is, how can I take all this? for myself. Worry makes us self-centered. And this is tricky because in our lives, a lot of us, if, if we take a look at what we worry about, we worry about others. And so we can start to think that our worry is somehow justified, that it's virtuous because, you know, I'm not worrying for myself. I'm being selfless. I'm worrying on behalf of others. You know, Jesus says, don't worry about your life. So I can totally worry about the lives of of, of my kids or my parents or my friends. And so you worry for those people. But again, the question is, What difference is your worrying going to make? What benefit will come to those you love by worrying about them? If anything, 
Here's what your worry is gonna do. It's actually gonna distort those relationships and it's actually a sign that you've maybe made an idol, either of that relationship or of the person you're worried about. See, in Philippians 4, 6, Paul says categorically, worry for nothing. Worry for nothing, but in everything, in prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. There is no such thing as virtuous worrying. It's a snare. Worry makes you greedy. It makes you self-centered. And even if you're worried for others, it's a sign that we're not trusting in God. And that's the root of worry. At its heart, worry is really unbelief. It's a lack of confidence in God, that that he's not looking out for you and yours. And so you need to take matters into your own hands. The root of worry is unbelief. So what's the antidote? Jesus says, don't worry about your life. Great, you know, telling someone who is in bondage to worry not to worry is like telling an addict to just stop craving the fix. (laughs) But thankfully, Jesus doesn't just tell us don't worry. He also gives us medicine. And there are two kind of complementary doses of medicine Jesus gives us in his teaching today. The, The first dose of medicine we need uh, to combat our worry is to know our smallness. The point of the parable of the rich fool is this. He has no clue what's going to happen tomorrow. He is small. He has no control over the time of his death and making all these plans, building bigger barns, storing up provisions so that he can take it easy is completely foolish because he doesn't know that that very night his life is going to be demanded of him. He acts as if he is the master of his own fate. And indeed, that is the spirit of the age voiced in that poem Invictus. I am the master of my own fate, the captain of my soul. And it's so clear in the parable that he is not. And it's so clear in the events of today that we are not the masters of our own fate. There's nothing like a pandemic to remind us of this, how fragile we are, how quickly life can get derailed and how suddenly it can all just come crashing down. Notice how our smallness as humans is echoed in Jesus' teaching that follows the parable. Look at verse 25. He says, who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? Since you can't do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Jesus says, uh, you know, for him, prolonging your life, adding an hour to your life, isn't only a small thing for Jesus. It's a very little thing that he says, you're powerless to do it. You are not able. Our smallness. Look at verse 32. He says uh, to his disciples, do not be afraid little flock. So first he compares his disciples to sheep who are generally dull, helpless creatures. And then he says that they're a little flock of rather dull, helpless creatures. Great. What a flattering picture for us. But Jesus is actually giving us what we need. We need an appreciation 
a realistic appreciation of our frailty and our limitation. That doesn't mean that Jesus is devaluing us, as we'll see in just a moment, but he is being real. He's inviting us to accept the humility that that comes with being human, to live in the awareness that we're not in control, that we don't know what tomorrow will bring, and to know that that is okay. That that's actually how God made us to be. That vulnerability is part of what it means to be human. He made us in our vulnerability, in our smallness, to trust in him and his care for us. He made us vulnerable that we might be drawn into this relationship where we are dependent on him. Part of the antidote to worry is just to know our smallness. Why? Why is that so important? Because when I know my smallness, I'm set free from the need to secure my tomorrow. It's not my job. There is one who is greater than I, who holds my life in his hands. You see, knowing our smallness brings this wonderful freedom to simply be who God made us to be without needing to apologize for it, without needing to perform, and without needing to pretend we're something we're not. We can simply be creatures of the creator, children of our heavenly father. That's good news. The second dose of medicine that Jesus gives us for our worry is that alongside of our smallness, we need to know and experience our belovedness. We need to know and experience our belovedness. Notice the affectionate tone in the text. He tells his disciples to consider the ravens and the flowers. And the point at the end of verse 24, and then it's implied again in verse 28, is this. How much more? How much more valuable are you than birds? How much more valuable are you than flowers? See, in God's eyes, your life and my life, they're precious. We are beloved. Look in verse 30. Jesus speaks of the tender care of our Father. Right? He's already taught his disciples to address the almighty God of the universe who is so vast and so great as Father. God the Father is pleased, it says in verse 32, to give you what? To give you your daily needs? Yes, but the bigger picture is he's pleased. He's more than pleased to give you the kingdom. That's huge. He's delighted to give us the gift of the kingdom of all things, of everything restored and renewed, the redeemed creation brought totally under the reign of God, the redeemed creation cleansed of all sin, disease, death, and evil. What an incredible gift. And this gift just speaks of our belovedness. That's how gift giving works, right? In our relationships with, with those closest to us, um, we give the greater and more precious gifts to, to those who are more precious to us, right? To, to our kids, to our spouses. They're the ones we save these precious gifts for. 
And he is pleased to give us the kingdom. Very practically, how can you and I experience that now? It's in God's presence. It's as we come into his presence through his word and in prayer. It's because in the presence of the greatness and majesty of God, we feel our smallness, don't we? We feel the reality of the words of Isaiah 47 and 8. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands together. It goes on to talk about how God holds the waters of the earth in the hollow of his hand, the majesty, the greatness of God. Have you ever swam in a deep part of the ocean, like a part that's not close to shore? From 30,000 feet up, if there was a, a video camera videoing you, you would be a speck. You would be less than a speck in the vastness of the ocean. And as you float there, what do you feel? You feel your smallness in the midst of the vastness of what you see around you. It's just all water. And in knowing the sheer depth that is beneath you, you can feel it tangibly. There's this awe and there's this holy reverence when we're in the deep parts of the ocean. And it's similar to when we're in the presence of God. When we are in the presence of the one who holds those deep parts in the hollow of his hand, we feel our smallness. But God's presence is also the place we experience our belovedness. To know that this awesome God isn't hostile to us, but that in and through Jesus, because of his life, his death, and his resurrection, we've been brought into his love. And that his love for us is relentless, that his care for us is dependable and sure. In God's presence, we experience both our smallness and our belovedness. So really, the antidote to worry, the medicine of knowing our smallness and our belovedness is about knowing Jesus Christ and about finding our joy in him and him alone. The real antidote for worry, there's not a, a three-step formula. The real antidote for worry is Christ himself and his spirit in us, drawing us into a deeper awareness of God's love, his presence, and of his grace in our lives. The key to dealing with our worry and finding joy, even in these circumstances, is really to place all of our trust in Jesus. It's to look around, take inventory, and think about the ways that I'm worrying. Think about the ways that I'm not trusting in God's provision for me. Repent of that and to come back to Jesus. He has given us every reason to trust him and more. And when we place our trust solely in Jesus and we find our joy solely in him, your joy isn't dependent on your health. Your joy isn't dependent on the stock market. Your joy isn't dependent on feeling like you've got tomorrow nailed down and it's going to happen exactly as you've planned it. Your joy, your hope, your trust is anchored rather in the one who owns everything and in the one who is delighted to give you the kingdom, and, and in the one who is going to resurrect you 
at the last day. If the coronavirus has taught us anything, it's that we're not in control. It has shattered that illusion, but there is one who is in control. So let's put our trust in him in a fresh way. Let's spend time in his presence and in prayer and in the scriptures. And let's, let's just take our hand and place it in his hand and let him lead us. I want to leave you with a quote from one of my favorite theologians, a German named Helmut Thielicke. He said, when I walk with my hand in the Father's, when I'm sure of his hand, then I have no fear, no anxiety, even in the darkest forest. He who is anxious and knows Christ may be assured that he is not alone in his anxiety, but that Christ too has gone through it. And this means a completely new attitude towards the future. No longer is the future a befogged landscape into which I peer anxiously because all kinds of obscure perils are brewing there for me. No, everything has changed. We do not know what is coming, but we know who is coming. And he who possesses the last hour no longer needs to fear the next minute. In this time, we need to know that we have Christ. We have the one who possesses the last hour, who will return to bring the kingdom in its fullness. We don't know what tomorrow will bring, but we know what eternity has in store. We know the end of the story. Christ has the final word. Christ has all authority, even now. And so we can place our confidence in him, knowing he's not going to let us down. He's not going to let us fall. We're not going to come up empty-handed. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you come and would you reveal Jesus to us and glorify him in us to the glory of the Father? In your presence, may you teach us our smallness and our belovedness so that we trust only in you and find our joy only in you. In this way, make us a church that is radiant with the joy of the Lord and empowered to be a light in this time of great darkness. For we pray it, Jesus, in your mighty name. Amen.